Whether in the media, our government, or our schools, Christianity faces tremendous intellectual persecution. This program stands on the intellectual front lines. With disarming honesty, we engage the most difficult issues facing Christians today. I want to welcome you to Theology Unplugged, the radio outreach of Credo House Ministries in Edmond, Oklahoma. We sit down over lattes at the Credo House coffee shop and just talk theology. I'm Michael Patton, president of Credo House Ministries. I'll be leading the discussion along with Tim Kimberly, director of ministries for Frontline Church Edmond, Sam Storms, lead pastor of Bridgeway Church, and finally J.J. Side, pastor of community and discipleship at Bridgeway Church. Welcome to Theology Unplugged. It's exciting to be back with you all, and I'm here with Michael Patton of the Credo House and Sam Storms of Bridgeway Church, and I'm Tim Kimberly at Frontline Church, and we get together every week, and we really just talk about theology in an unplugged way, and what that means is we get together, we have a rough idea of the topic we might talk about, but it's just three guys and, and sometimes four guys getting together and saying, hey, let's have a good, solid discussion on this topic, and the topic today, we're going through problem passages of the Bible, I think... Michael, I think this isn't maybe so much one particular problem passage as maybe a biblical theology of, of a problem idea, and the idea being what really happens when we die. Yeah, and, you know, it does become a problem to, to the degree that you do have, will see have uh, different groups of people that will, as a doctrinal statement, have a big disagreement about this with uh, more uh, maybe evangelical or orthodox yeah. views on this particular subject. Well, and what's really interesting is that we do talk a lot as Christians. We talk a lot about heaven. We talk a lot about salvation. We talk a lot about God, of course, which is really all those things are, are marvelous. But then we don't very often actually talk about what precisely happens the moment someone's heart stops beating. Mm. And 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 Sam, why do you think that is? Why, why do we just kind of uh, not really get down to that detail? I'm not real sure why that is the case. Maybe it's because there is... Um, and and do, you, do, do you agree with what I said potentially, too? I mean, maybe you say, no, I talk about this all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I probably talk about it a little bit more than you do. <laughs> I have people asking this question all the time. Okay. I mean, obviously, as a full-time pastor, and um, you know, I have the experience of uh, death on a unfortunately mm-hmm. on a regular basis, and the question that everybody asks is, well, what happened to my husband? What happened to my uh, my mother, my father? Where are they? Do they see us? Do they know what's going on uh, here on earth? Do they are they aware of my actions? Uh, are they conscious? Are they asleep? We have the Bible uses this terminology of sleep that we'll talk about in just a minute. Um, so, or, or, you know, are they in the presence of Christ? And if they, if that's true, how can that be the case since their body is in the ground? And, uh, do they recognize other people in heaven mm-hmm. and how can they do that if they're in some disembodied spiritual condition? So countless questions that are raised. Countless questions, regard. but also I think there's a lot of assumptions, you know, normally, like Tim said, we don't really talk about it in depth like we made today because we kind of just assume what's going on there and give the answers without having to think through it. I think this problem passage or these this difficulty that we're looking at the Scripture really causes us or will cause us to dig deep and think about it in a way that uh, we have to go beyond our assumptions. Well, so do you think Ecclesiastes 9.5 is maybe a good springboard to get into this topic? Definitely. Okay, let me read it real quick. Ecclesiastes 9.5 says, For the living know that they will die, 
but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. So Sam, when someone says at a funeral, hey, uh, where is my loved one right now? Have you ever quoted this well, verse? Well, let me go one more first. I'm going to quote the verse and then Sam answer that. But okay. this what is makes you nine five. I, what makes you think I've got an answer? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting there looking at this saying, what in the world? Well, okay. let, me, let me go Ecclesiastes 9.10. Okay. You did 9.5, 9.10. Whatever your, fi- your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Okay. Pause. Long pause. So th- this does seem to suggest and, and could... Well, what was your question well to Sam? Come. I don't want to... Well, my question to Sam generally was, Sam, is this, do you go to this area of scripture at a funeral or do you go to this area of scripture when someone <laughs> is wondering uh, what just happened? Uh, or if you're in a, let's say you're in a hospital bed and you, you know, a, a spouse, uh, unfortunately, has just passed away. And let's say the wife looks to you and says, they're gone. They're obviously not here anymore. Where are they right now? <laughs> no, I don't go to this text <laughs> to be very blunt and, and uh, precise. No, I do not appeal to Ecclesiastes 9. Um, well, why is it a problem? Let's, let's get that straight for our audience. Well, I mean, I think of just being really quick. I think of the thief on the cross and Jesus saying, today you're going to be with me in paradise. And, and this seems to suggest that whenever you die, there's, it's just a nothingness. Yeah. No knowledge, no wisdom where you're going. No memory of them. The dead do not know anything. Well, and I think this is, let's talk hermeneutics, just basic, basic, how do we interpret the Bible? We need to be people who don't have our ideas already made up and then go to Scripture. But instead, we go to Scripture and say, make my ideas and and be the author of my faith. Uh, And so the Holy Spirit uses Scripture to teach us the things of God. And so we do always need to be open. And this potentially potentially could teach us that when someone dies, they basically are just asleep. And this is the concept of soul sleep, that they are asleep, that they basically do not wake up again until potentially the second coming of Jesus, potentially. And then you could go down a lot of potentials of when do these people wake up. Is soul sleep a good term that kind of covers it universally from you guys, y'all? Um, well, I don't like it it's for the simple fact that nowhere in the Bible does it ever say the soul sleeps. But as far as describing well, this, I could say Ecclesiastes nine five. But the word soul isn't used here. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm with you there. Now, but it's it is a formal theological position. Yes. Soul sleep. Yeah, but let's let's think a little bit about Ecclesiastes. A couple things to keep in mind. Number one, we have to recognize the principle of progressive revelation, and we know that the doctrine of the afterlife and he what sounds happens like a dispensationalist. after death. Maybe. <laughs> Only sounds like <laughs> remotely. Um, but um, now you got me way off track. Sorry, Michael. sorry. That's all right. Um, we must recognize that the, the uh, revelation that God has given of the, of the nature of the afterlife came progressively. It wasn't given in one uh, s- substantial complete deposit at a particular point in time. And so we see progression in the understanding of uh, Old Testament saints in terms of what happens after death. Okay, you you just introduced progressive revelation. Talk about that more broadly for our audience, because I think we all would agree that there's lots of progressive revelation in some clear areas, but now we're applying it to this one. What is progressive revelation? 
Well, progressive revelation, if I can use an analogy, is uh, like the difference between the seed and the flower. Uh, oftentimes in the Old Testament, we are given a seed form of truth concerning some principle, some doctrine, some idea. And uh, it takes time over the centuries as God progressively uh, discloses and reveals more and more regarding some particular truth. I mean, we could take the example of the coming of the Messiah. I mean, we have in Genesis 3, you know, this promise of, a, of a, the seed of the woman. Well, what in the world is that? And then the farther you move into the Old Testament in the Mosaic law and the, and the uh, sacrificial system uh, in the Day of Atonement, and you begin to get a broader picture of the coming of an ultimate sacrifice that will um, atone for sin. And then finally, obviously, you have these many Old Testament prophecies about a coming Messiah and then eventually, obviously, the advent of Jesus himself. So it's progressively, gradually, incrementally revealed over time. And I think the same can be true of the understanding about the nature of the afterlife. Hmm. Now, let, just a couple of comments about this passage. Um, I think that what we are reading here in verse 5 and verse, in verse 10 of, of Ecclesiastes 9 is a description of what the person on earth perceives to be the experience of the person who has died. So in other words, I think he's saying that um, the dead know nothing as far as we can see because they're not present. Uh, they have no more reward on earth because they're not alive. The memory of them in terms of our experience is forgotten, but that doesn't mean that they are unconscious. Uh, and then again, in the um, in verse 10, it says, For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol. He's saying there's no work on the earth, there's no thinking on the earth, there's no knowledge on the earth, there's no wisdom that we now have when you go to the grave. As far as we can tell, we look at somebody who's died and been buried, and we say they're obviously cut off from the conscious experiences that we have in this life. I don't necessarily think that he is suggesting that they have no consciousness or knowledge or wisdom in the next life. Well, you know, whenever you talk about soul sleep, soul sleep basically says that whenever people die, you, uh, people in Christ, uh, believers, Old Testament or New Testament, whenever they die, they have no consciousness. In a sense, it's, it's a, uh, the soul is asleep. And then the next thing that people will have next event on their calendar is the resurrection. So basically, if it were true, if I were to die today, it would be like instantaneous at the resurrection. I would have no what is called an intermediate state. And that intermediate state we often talk about where people go when they die. They are in heaven. They are in the presence of Christ. And uh, they are... Um, uh, joyful. They are, they are eagerly awaiting the resurrection, but they have consciousness. This, because of this passage and others like it, many people believe in soul sleep, including um, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Seventh-day Adventists, not really trying to equate those two, but they believe that. And I think even Martin Luther, an argument could be made that he held to some sort of soul sleep as well. And Calvin wrote an entire treatise against the idea hmm. of soul sleep. So it's been a problem for a while. Yeah, but it's interesting that the groups that you mentioned that embrace it are not ones that we would say are mainstream evangelical Protestants. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they are somewhat uh, sectarian, even uh, cultish in the yeah. case of uh, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses. 
But I, I think we have to read a passage like Ecclesiastes in light of the complete, fuller revelation of the New Testament. Um, and there are numerous texts in the New Testament that I think explicitly teach that when a Christian dies, he or she instantaneously passes into the, into the presence of Christ. They are conscious. They are joyful. They are filled with knowledge. Um, and they are not in some sort of um, unconscious state, but that they are very conscious. So maybe we ought to look at some of those passages. Okay. Yeah, bring us to one, brother. But, I, but after you w- read one, I want to read another one from another author that seems to suggest soul sleep as well. Okay. That You're just good. in a contrarian mood today. Sorry. Aren't you? I mean, we just, people are listening. Right. We got smart people that listen. All right. Well, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1 uh, is talking about whether or not he's going to be released from prison or whether he'll die there. And he says in verse 21 of Philippians 1, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, that's his language for to die, and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So Paul seems to envision two possibilities. I'm either alive and I'm with you, or I'm dead and I'm with Christ. And he says, granted, uh, in terms of your welfare, it would be better if I stayed alive because I can continue to minister to you and enjoy your fellowship. But to die is gain. It's better because it gets me more of Christ. It brings me into the immediate presence of the Lord. If Paul believed that when he died, he fell into some unconscious state that would for now, what, two millennia, uh, he remains oblivious to anything, much less Mm -hmm. the presence of Jesus. I don't know how he could say what he does. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. As opposed to to die is to sleep, and so I should stay here instead. And, And yeah, and he says it. He says, my desire is to depart or to leave this life physically and to be with Christ. So I don't see Paul throwing in here a third option. In other words, he says, I can be alive and with you and apart from Christ, or I can be dead apart from you and with Christ, there's no third category that he would envision here, namely the idea that I can die and yet not be with Christ because I'm unconscious. All right, Michael, where are you at, brother? Well, I think, you know, Ecclesiastes, I think, is one thing to deal with. Um, Because I think Ecclesiastes sometimes, it's a wonderful book for this generation because of the, from, from my perspective, the way in which you interpret it is not so much picking out doctrine from it, but seeing a very disenchanted person who is looking at the world and trying to find meaning and expressing himself in his, in his beliefs without, without necessarily saying that it's teaching these things. You see, in the Bible, whenever we're, whenever we're talking about interpreting the Bible. We've got to understand that there's a difference in, sometimes in what the Bible will say and what the Bible is actually teaching. A uh, good example would be when we're talking about people like Job or Job's friends. In, when we're reading Job's friends, it's in the Bible, and what they say is, is recorded and is inspired in the sense that God uh, brought this to us, but what they say is not necessarily correct. In other words, there's a difference, we can use some technical terms, between descriptive things in Scripture and prescriptive. Yes. In other words, descriptive, these are things that are simply described, but they aren't necessarily 
representative of truth mm. because, as you say, Job's friends misrepresented God. God says it at the end of the book of Job. He says, they've spoken wrong of me, but it's recorded for us in Scripture. Prescriptive is are, are the biblical texts that prescribe or recommend or command or commend to us truth. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that that's very much the case, and Ecclesiastes can oftentimes fall into that. Category. And it does because I mean, look at some of the things that uh, uh, Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, where he, who's to say that the soul of the man goes up and the soul of an animal goes down? I mean, it's kind of like this, uh, you know. I, I'm I'm disenchanted with life. I'm discouraged, and I'm just saying my discouragement, which is encouraging to us because sometimes we get there, but it doesn't necessarily mean we always take it as doctrinal. But if we take Ecclesiastes, set that aside and say, okay, we've kind of dealt with that. Uh, but we, we do have other passages. Isaiah thirty-eight eighteen says, for Sheol can't thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. And then in Psalms as well, that's Isaiah 38, 18. And then in Psalm 88, three through five, it says, for my soul has had enough troubles and my life is drawn near to Sheol. I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I've become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead, like the slain to the grave, whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. So, you know, guys, here's the thing that I'm dealing with is, is what Sam was talking about, is that it just seems like in the Old Testament, their view of the intermediate state, and I think uh, much all of kind of the end times type stuff and, and uh, personal, personal eschatology is what we call it, but um, they just don't seem to have much knowledge about it. And so there are some assumptions that are made maybe about uh, what what it is like uh, without necessarily being true, without being taught. Okay, okay can, let, I want to okay. come back. Before we go, I want to challenge your uh, reading of 3818. Okay. Isaiah 3818. Let's, let's also read verse 19. All right, verse 18. Are you saying we should keep it in context? Yeah. Dang it. For Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you. As I do this day, the Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. So again, I think what he's saying is that when you die, you you no longer are on this earth so that you can hope in the living God and the faithfulness of God as I am doing in my earthly existence. So there's present. a certain way in which living here on the earth is a is of great benefit to us because of the, the relationship that we have with God, the opportunities that we have that are different than after we die. And so people are losing the opportunities as they, uh, uh, whenever they die. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's as if a guy is standing at the grave of someone who's just died, and he says, look, they've gone down to the pit. I'm standing here on the earth, and in my experience, I'm continuing to hope in God. I'm continuing to experience faithfulness and joy and gratitude toward God. Well, he's not alive in his body in the earth, so he can't do what I'm doing. That's not necessarily saying that he's not conscious in the afterlife. He's talking about the experience, what he perceives to be the experience of the dead or the lack thereof from the point of view of one who's on earth. 
Quick question. This is uh, kind of zooming way out. And uh, oh, and also to mention real quick, too, uh, if you have questions, feel free to throw them to theologyunplugged at credohouse.org. Uh, email those to us and we'll talk about them in the weeks. Yeah, to questions come. or comments. We, this, we're, yeah. we're on Bot Radio and we love to hear your feedback on, on what's going on. So theologyunplugged at, at credohouse.org. Okay, so Michael, a lot of the soul sleep ideas seem to be coming from Ecclesiastes, Psalm, uh, potentially Isaiah, but uh, but Sam just blew you out of the water on that one. But uh, then a lot of, uh, it seems like the talk is a lot different in the New Testament. Is it, is it possible that that is because what happened to someone when they died in the Old Testament could be different than what happened post Jesus being here on earth. That is it possible that maybe there was a soul sleep uh, at the time of the Old Testament, but now with what Jesus did when he bought our souls for God, that that even when we die today before the the final resurrection, that maybe it looks a little different. What do you guys think? You know, I suppose if, if you say, is it possible? I mean, yes, it's possible. But is that the best way to understand Scripture and the progressive revelation of Scripture? I would say no, because we have no reason to believe that people in the Old Testament who still were saved the same way we are, justified by faith alone, the content of their faith grew progressively from the from the uh, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, to, to the sacrificial system, to Isaiah 53. But it's always the same method of salvation, and it's always Christ and his blood, uh, the looking forward to it, as uh, it says in Romans chapter 3, and the, um, the us being saved the same way. So there's no reason for us theologically to say that there is a necessary difference between Old Testament intermediate state and New Testament intermediate state. And there are other texts that we have to bring to bear on this. Uh, now, again, in bringing up Luke 16, I'm, I want everybody to understand, I realize there's a lot of dispute over what mm-hmm. the nature of this experience, but the story about the rich man and Lazarus, mm-hmm. this is Old Testament, even though it's recorded in the New. This is mm-hmm. pre-cross, pre-resurrection of Christ, and Lazarus dies, and he goes, and he sees Abraham, and he is conscious in this intermediate state. And, of course, the rich man is in Hades. He's suffering, and he wants some relief brought to him. And, of course, the statement is, no, there's an unbridgeable uh, chasm or gap between the two. So if we can appeal to Luke 16, and there's a big dispute about that, this would indicate that Old Testament saints, in this case the man named Lazarus, is in a conscious state of existence in what is called the bosom of Abraham, which was a euphemism for going to your fathers, joining the patriarchs. And then, of course, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is very clear Mm -hmm. uh, when he says, uh, for we we are always of good courage. This is verse 6. We know that while we are at home in the body, Mm -hmm. that's alive on this earth, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Well, in other words, we can't see him. We have to trust him. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So again, Paul says there are only two options. You're either in the body and away from the Lord, and you can't see him, or you're away from the body, and you're with the Lord, and you do see him. And then you add to that, for example, Revelation 6, where John says, I looked uh, under the altar, and I saw souls mm-hmm. who were crying out for vindication. Mm-hmm. Well, these are obviously those who had been martyred for Christ, so yeah. they're they're conscious, they're in the presence of Christ, they're calling out for vindication. And then lastly, and this is the last passage I would mention, in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, the author talks about our worship in the New Covenant, and he says, 
Uh, we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Some believe that's a reference to the corporate church, to the body of Christ in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Mm. So he seems to envision this incredible worship service going on in the heavenly Jerusalem that involves angels, uh, the spirits of men and women who have been uh, vindicated and justified in the presence of Christ. So I think when you look at all these texts collectively, that there's a strong case that can be made that whereas the body may be said to sleep because it is at rest, the soul, the spirit, the immaterial part of man is very much alive and conscious in the presence of Christ. Let me say one more thing here. <clears throat> The formal uh, kind of philosophy behind this is called monism. It's this mm -hmm. idea that the body and the soul are a unity, and there's no real separation or breach that can ever take place. And while I believe they're wrong because of what we've talked about here in the New Testament, here's one of the things that I do like whenever we're talking about this subject is that you said, talked about funerals and what we say at funerals. And we, we do. We talk about where they're at with Christ. But I think the emphasis that this can place upon us is how important the resurrection is and how important it is for our body to be reunified mm -hmm. with our soul and how it not, not not in heaven we are desperate or or sad but we are wanting the resurrection and the resurrection is so important because that is when we 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 return to the way we are supposed to be and so that that is the emphasis that i think that we can positively get from this we hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast if it's blessed you, they'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to join the group again next week for another edition of Theology Unplugged. Theology Unplugged is a listener-supported ministry of the Credo House. They're a theological hub and coffee shop, and their address is 109 Northwest 142nd Street in Edmond, Oklahoma, 73013. They're open Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 9 p.m., and Saturdays, 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. Please consider this your official invitation. You're invited to come and visit the Credo House and discuss today's program or take a tour of the theologically rich surroundings. You might also enjoy one of their signature drinks like a Luther latte or a Nicene mocha. In fact, if it's your first time in the Credo House and you mention that you heard their program on Bot Radio Network, you can have the drink of your choice for free. For more information or to support this ministry, visit credohouse.org.